0: Hamster Wheel Publishing. This is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On the podcast today, we talk with Dr. Sue Ettinger, a.k.a. The Cancer Vet. Dr. Sue is a boarded oncologist and heads up the oncology department at the Animal Speciality and Emergency Center in the Hudson Valley, New York. She's a co-author of best-selling Dog Cancer Survival Guide, co-hosts the Pet Cancer Vet podcast, and if that wasn't enough, she's also a certified veterinary journalist contributing to Clinician's Brief, Today's Veterinary Practice, Veterinary Team Brief, and DVM 360. Dr. Sue is super passionate about raising cancer awareness and developing the awesome See Something, Do Something, Why Wait, Aspirate program. More than that in the episode. This might be my favorite episode yet. The energy was insane. So without further ado, may I present Dr. Sue Essinger. Dr. Sue Essinger, welcome to the podcast. It's very, very nice to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This is exciting. Very brave of you. Very brave of me. <laughs> yeah, well, in our emailing exchanges, I'm, one, I'm, I'm worried because the podcasts are longer than maybe other people are doing and then you said you were very chatty and i thought oh because we are both probably of that ilk so we've got to we've got to try and keep this this could be like a four or five hour podcast it can't be because dr sue we're both sat here at the cvc convention in virginia beach um the sun to set the scene is blisteringly hot outside it is um, i've been running on a beach been fortunate enough to swim near dolphins of all things um, which was an amazing start to the day and the conference is set and it looks like it's going to be a really good conference. I'm particularly excited to talk to you Sue. Um, We were made aware of each other I think by our mutual friend Andy Rourke who seems to be a connecting dot (laughs) for many people around the industry and so I'm super well actually when I first heard about you the first thought that pops into my, my head was, you've got kind of a famous second name. And so um, being of uh, being of the, the generation that learned from uh, from the, the textbooks like Ettinger, um, my, first, my first curiosity was, is there a relationship?
1: It's funny. There are times when I get, you know, I won't hear that question for a long time. And then recently I was back up at Cornell where I went to vet school for a white coat ceremony and the question came up over and over. But the... Answer is yes. Um, we are related, but it's by distant marriage. And it will kind of hurt your brain. But I'll tell you so <laughs> when I was an undergrad, I wanted to be a vet since I was a kid. And when I was an, un- you know, and everyone would say, Are you related? And I wasn't. And then my mom called me. She's just like, We're related. I said, What? She's like, I was just on the phone with my mom, with grandma. My grandmother's, my maternal grandmother, her cousin remarried Steven Edinger's father. Okay. <laughs>
0: You're right so
1: it's not a blood relation it's not so it's just a coincidence
0: it's a wonderful coincidence at that yeah I it is it. it's a good name I love it well so it yeah, you are um you know've I've seen um, what you do in terms of uh, speaking on on video um I've heard such great reports and certainly the uh, interactions I've had with you and what I've heard from others are that you're one of the people that manages to bridge several sort of or you know you you're able to You've got your foot in the camp of academia and specialization, um, of teaching, of being a clinical practice, um, and of being a great presenter. And that's a sort of unusual skill set to put those things all together. So it's kind of, I was excited to be able to do this interview. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for your kind words. You're welcome. Let's let's start. And I guess the the first question, what I'm interested in is just for people that don't know you or not aware of you, I think perhaps the the world falls into people that, that already know uh, Dr. Sue and the ones that are soon going to know Dr. Sue, um, what were your sort of early influences on your life and career? And let's maybe, you, you, you can start wherever you want to start, but, um, maybe if, if you want to even go pre-vet, like give us the background to how you became a veterinarian.
1: My parents tell me that when I was in kindergarten that I did this picture that, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? me with a dog in the background, like I've always wanted to be a veterinarian. I was one of those kids that always loved animals, always wanted to be a veterinarian. So that was always my track. Um, Then when I went to undergrad at Tufts University in the Boston area, I was like, you know, pre-vet's a lot of science. And I loved art history. And that was the influence of my French teacher. And I thought, well, maybe I'll be an art history major, still be pre-vet, but do both. But it was so hard with all of the pre-vet requirements. So I decided that that would be like my second interest, but, and I took a lot of art history classes. I did a summer in Florence um, through, you know, a different university studying art. So I always have that passion for art, but, you know, it's just one of those things always wanted to be a vet. The oncology part is a separate story. I mean, that was, uh, you know, something I didn't figure out until my internship and one of my big failures, you know, trying to become a specialist.
0: Uh, so so if I'm hearing you right so you're not content with just doing one sort of, uh, and for in the UK it would be like an undergraduate right. degree, you're running two together, although any of my friends that did the arts generally did two lectures a week, but that's enough to push you over the edge right when you're doing a veterinary <laughs> schedule and then you did a, a third sort of trip through university as well so if you're not already getting the picture that Dr. Sue's quite driven then that might might give us some insight in there. You ended up after graduation and i'm talking about your your veterinary mm-hmm. um d- degree um certainly for listeners who are not aware of the u.s system generally you do two degrees you do a, Correct. What what we would call an undergraduate degree, then you do another what we would still call an undergraduate degree, but you guys have right. different names so for those things, right? So it's four years
1: of undergrad and then vet school on top of that, which is another four
0: years, right? Okay, so, it's so eight years to get to the vet school. Eight years of vet school and eight years of debt as well, which is which is always interesting as well. You one of your early positions was at a place that's uh, uh, certainly it's a, an, almost a mythical place for us in the UK. Not mythical, as in doesn't exist, but as in this, <laughs> this sort of fantasy realm of big practice. And and you, I, I, when I think of this this facility, I think of ER, but for veterinary medicine, and that's the AMC in in New York City. Right. Tell me more about that role and about the place. And can you can you again give us an insight into what was like working there was like?
1: So that was where I got um, picked, you know, and selected through the match program to do my internship. Wasn't my first choice. I'm from the New York area, but I had never lived in New York, so there was that intimidation of going to live in New York City. But AMC is this eight-story hospital on the-
0: Is it in Manhattan?
1: On the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and 30 intern mates. And it was like a movie. On the first day, the head of the intern program told us we were all dumb as rocks. (laughs) And you're like, but I just graduated vet school. I, I'm so smart. I have and then, two degrees. I have two degrees. And then you go into clinics and you start seeing patients and you're like, I'm dumb as a rock, <laughs> you know? But like, and you worked 80 hours a week, you worked 20 days on and then got one day off. You know, you some of your days you did from seven in the morning till the evening, and then you went what was called the double. And you worked until anywhere from midnight till three in the morning, and then you got back up and were back at work the next morning. like. It was all of, it was, and it was just the norm there. Like there was no questioning. You're like, well, this is what you do. So it was this crazy program. But when I graduate, when I finished, I wasn't dumb as a rock, thank right, you, Dr. Right. Garvey. He even told us all, but I felt so comfortable to go and do any ER shift in anything that I had gained so much experience. And it was very teaching oriented. So it wasn't all about work, which is different than some internship programs, But I mean 80 hours a week, you know, it was crazy. Um but it was so worth it. Yeah. And I know that's probably you probably don't have to work that hard to do to get that, but it was something that I at least look back and feel like it really trained me well and um shaped me in the clinician that I wanted to be.
0: Right. And and that do you think that's something that's we're losing now? I mean, if if a graduate were to apply for a role there now would it be the same or has that changed
1: it's changed i'm not there anymore but i know the internship program is smaller um there's also been a shift i think in a lot of um these programs to not have the end like we were on our own in the evening with with supervised by a resident but there was four interns and a resident so you're never really alone but i think there's a, a shift by and i think a lot of it is patient driven and client driven to have more experienced doctors on the ER, so they have less interns there. Um, I don't think someone should have to work that hard and sleep that little to get that. You know, it, it was very old school. And the other thing, it was tough. Like if you messed up on a case, let you admitted on the ER, they called you over in the morning in front of the group that picked it up and in they Rome's. told you what you did wrong.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, and it, you know, I did go to the locker room a couple of times and cried and think, I, I'm not gonna get through this program. Yeah, I'm not tough enough.
0: And probably everyone in of the interns had the same experience, yeah. right? Yeah. The podcast is a lot about dissecting the anatomy of success. And a lot, you know, you have been very successful. And, and from our conversations prior to this point, I know that the route to where you are now has not been a straight line. At all. Um, my first question, I've got lots of questions about that. But my first question is more about the discipline uh, and the effort and the um, routines and habits that you you employed or deployed in order to become a, a diplomat, a specialist. Tell me about the journey, like, and I'm going to come back to this because I know that you had, you know, it wasn't a straight line, but I'm more interested in the actions and the focus that was required in order to be a specialist. Certainly some of the audience listening will be um, people who are starting out their careers, who have ambitions to become, to get to where you are in whatever discipline they want. What's required?
1: For me, it's crazy hard work. And I can tell you, so my husband was my intern mate. That's where we we met. And he's a brilliant guy. And when he studied for boards, he sat two years ahead of me. And, you know, you have some time off. And I would literally walk into our study and he'd be in the lazy boy chair, looking at articles, like holding them above, like so, you know, like looking, just skimming through them. And then I'd come in again, he'd be playing whatever video game was, you know, and for me, when I study and for me to be successful, I have to work so hard. Study, take notes of my notes, toil away. When I studied for boards, it was 12 to 14 hours a day, hunched over a desk, yep. studying, studying, studying. So for me, I feel the key is hard work. Um, I'm not saying I'm not smart, but I'm also a person who has to work really hard to pass tests and and, and achieve things. It doesn't come to me naturally. I work really hard at what I'm doing. So that has been my underlying theme, is just put my head down, work hard, and try not to put for an ulcer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so, spe- so the, and the ulcer moments, what, so what, what's likely to give Dr. Sue an ulcer?
1: Bringing me back to my residency days, it was whether or not I would pass boards, right. you know, because there was so much pressure and I didn't yep. want to have to wait a year and do it again and then tell people that I failed. Yep. Um, so that was probably one of the biggest um I I probably did have an ulcer. I was on <laughs> I put myself on in over the counter anti ulcer medication at the suggestion of my husband, who was watching me toil away. Right. Um. Actually, when I passed boards, he said, "Thank goodness you passed boards," because I don't know how you would have studied harder.
0: Right. Right. right?
1: Like he's like you. I don't know what you could have done more to pass that test, but it's a bad test.
0: <laughs> okay, and I suppose it has to be in order yeah. to um, you know, to to maintain the quality. Um. Your first choice, and, and we're going to talk a lot more about you know cancer in general. But your first choice uh, when you first set out on your journey wasn't to become uh, an oncologist,
1: was it? No, this? I wanted to be a surgeon. Right. And actually, if I tell you this, like blunt dissection, you might have to kick me off the podcast. <laughs> You're like, at first, I was, that's not about surgery, right? He knows I'm not a surgeon. <laughs> um, no, you know,
0: it should be sharp dissection for an <laughs> oncologist. though, <laughs> Exactly.
1: <shouldn't it? laughs> When I was in vet school, Cornell did not have an oncology program. We learned about cancer, but there, when you got into clinics rotation, there wasn't a dedicated oncology service. So there wasn't the focus there. When I was a second year, I became friends with a surgery resident, and every year he took one or two students sort of under his wing, and we did the overnight, like we were the ones who were on call to set up the the OR for the emergency surgeries, and he was so passionate about surgery, and I was like, I'm going to be a surgeon, and who doesn't want to be a surgeon, right? You right. fix things, and you, you you remove things, and I thought it was so cool, so... My path was to become a surgeon. And when I graduated Cornell and went to AMC, they ask you, what are you planning on applying for a residency? Surgery. So of my, they try to give you those rotations in the beginning to get you set up for your application for residency. So I had surgery, soft tissue, then oncology. I was like, huh, oncology, that could be fun. Mm. Then orthopedics. And I was like, I did my oncology rotation. I was like, oh, this is, you know what? I'm gonna be a surgery oncology person. I'll do that. I'll just I'll do my residency. Then I'll go to Colorado. I'm sure I'll get it. And I'll you know like for me it was like I just put my mind to it. It will happen. Um, and so I was like I'll just combine the two. So I went through, did the did the application, did all the interviews, and then I didn't match for surgery that year. And it gave me great pause it was also a, one of my first times i think i really failed academically as a driven person yeah but it was one of the best failures in my life because it allowed me to realize i don't think i want to be a surgeon yeah and then i had to do a couple extra steps to get into the oncology world because to be honest i don't know if you know this but a lot of the times You know whether it's radiology or surgery, they don't like people who switch because Mm. then they think, ah, you're just doing it because you didn't get it the first time. So I had to do an oncology fellowship at Duke, and then I went back up to Cornell and did another oncology position, and then I matched for my oncology residency.
0: Show the people, yeah, that I really—that's what you're really into. Take me back to the, you know, the, the the subject of two two things popped in my head as you were going there. One was people who you've experienced or encountered who've been very passionate about what they do have clearly had a big influence mm-hmm. on you from your uh french teacher mm-hmm. uh, or the art history teacher sorry um to the surgical person that's coming across in absolute spades here that that's the people like that fire you up and have true. really inspired you um the other thing i wanted to just touch on then was how how did you deal with and handle that failure that perceived failure um how did you process that and and move forward past that
1: and i am actually like getting a little bit like just thinking about that moment so garvey who's this very large man who told us we were dumb as rocks on the first day of our internship yeah as he was smoking a cigarette drinking a big thermos of coffee in a room that said no smoking like it was the conference room all 30 (laughs) interns you know bright-eyed and bushy-tailed um, but he, w- this was before you could log in on the internet and find out, like you just, you waited. And so he walked around the hospital of our 30 people in our class, probably almost 20 applied for residencies. Yep. And Huter, my husband, like, Huter, you're staying here for medicine. Bonzinski, you're staying here for surgery. Dan, you're going to, you know, um, uh, he was going to Tufts for nutrition. He was like, Edinger, I got nothing for you. Like in front of everybody. Like he just walked around the big hallway and you're like, oh so not only was it a personal failure it was that social failure like you were in front of all of your peers um it was heartbreaking and not all i wasn't the only one who didn't match but it was a devastating blow personally to experience that if that
0: and what happened next and and thinking your processing yeah, of it, I think, how did you get to? I mean, I think my that? initial
1: thought was I'll just apply next year, right? Yep. You know, fail once. It wasn't like, oh, I didn't want that anyway. But as I was like, well, what should I do? There was, you know, different, there wasn't specialty internships like we have now in the in the States. So I started to look into programs that I could do for the next year. Did I want to go into private practice? Did I want to do something surgery related? And then this Duke position came up about um, it was a research position down at Duke, and it was a joint program with NC State. I was like, "Huh, maybe this is going to be the thing I want to spend my next year doing." and that was and then I did that, and then I applied for oncology, failed again. <laughs> at least I was in my office at Duke, you know, and the only person that knew was my supervisor. Um, she was a radiation oncologist, but it wasn't the <laughs> The and then when I was back at Cornell, I finally matched and I went back to Animal Medical Center to do my medical oncology residency 2 years after finishing my internship.
0: How did um did you get reasons for each failure like the the failure to match with the surgery program and then the failure to match with the uh, oncology the first go round were you given feedback or reasons on those that could help you move forward? You
1: don't really it's a very Detached process yeah. because you know it. This computer spits out where you're going. You talk to your mentors, and they may say. Um, and I applied, I think, for 20 surgery programs. It wasn't like I was limiting myself geographically because I said I don't want to go there. I applied for private practice. I applied for universities. Um, some people said your GPA is not high enough. I graduated vet school. I want to say with like a three five, like respectable. You know, not top of my class. Um, but the, you know, so some people say it was your GPA. You, you didn't have a paper. You know, nothing that was.
0: What does GPA mean? What is that? Is that basically like your your level of degree? Yeah,
1: it's your your. It's like um out of four. Right. So in the universities in the states, both undergrad and vet school, it's based on a so a, a GPA of four is okay. perfect. It's like right. is graduating with a hundred percent. Okay. So.
0: So it'd be our equivalent of having a first class. Yeah. A a, a two two. Yeah. So So I was
1: probably in the top third of my class, which to be a surgeon is, you know, not good enough kind of thing. So those were the things like you need to do a paper, you need more experience, you need, you know, things like that. For oncology, it was very simple. You just this is your first time applying and we don't believe you. I mean, that was literally the unofficial, (laughs) you know, people would tell me off the record. It was because I just changed my mind and they didn't believe that I, you know, that I would that I was passionate about it. And now the funny thing is I look back and I don't even wanna biopsy like a mass. I did that uh, for the first couple of years when I was a boarded oncologist. And I was like, this is not my thing. Like, you know, I can't imagine doing anything else. And so my advice for people is, you know, it's hard not to get swept up by someone else's passion, which is what you were saying, right? right,
0: right. Somebody
1: could be so passionate about it. You're like, oh my God, I wanna do what they're doing. Cause look how happy they are. Look how much they love. <laughs> And I love what I do right now, but I thought I wanted to be a surgeon. So I think, you know, that's the hard part about follow your passion is you might not always know what your passion is at the moment.
0: And that, that, that sort of leads into the next question, which I'm personally, I'm fascinated to being open to the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounds like a lot of, I mean, a lot of us, this whole concept of success being, I start here, I get there. Just as a fallacy that doesn't exist, you 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 get halfway along and then you think, oh, I'll try that, and oh, try something different, and you almost by accident run into the thing that you love. Is there, if you could go back in time to the start of that, are are there any clues that you could, you know, you could look back and go, I I I knew then that might be a smarter way for me to go, or would there have been any processes that you would tell yourself? right back at the start of your career, you should do this. That will help you find your direction.
1: I don't think so, to be honest. For me, it's the experience, you know? And I think, you know, I look back when I did my oncology resident or my oncology rotation during my internship and I got really excited about it. To be honest, if I said, if I had at that moment had the revelation apply for oncology, it was sort of too late. Yep. Because I had told everybody I wanted to be a surgeon, <laughs> you know, and you like, so I, I probably wouldn't. It, so for me, I don't think so. And I look back at those failures, and I'm grateful for them. Right. You know, I think they're important for us. And I think it's also really important to talk about it. Because I look at other people that when I was trying to become an oncologist that seemed so successful, and you're like, oh, it was so easy for them. And it wasn't. Um, and I think it's, you know, those really crappy moments when Garvey's walking around and says, I do not enjoy, I got nothing for you, you know, that make you a better person in yeah. the long run.
0: They, they, they do that or they, or they crush you. Is there anything different about you um, that makes you more resilient to those moments? Or have you found ways to build that as you go through your career? You know, I'm, I'm going to talk a little later, ask you questions about, you know, the discipline you're in now on the outside looks like it could be a depressing place to work you know all of our patients are all going to die at some point but your patients in particular such the myth right and so that's a question we'll come on to okay which which is one of the real reasons i'm super fascinated to talk to you about this um but is is there anything in those experiences that built your resilience or were you just more naturally resilient can you put your finger on anything for me, you.
1: I feel like it's to get good at anything you practice and i've pro- i mean I'm a very sensitive person and i'm a very as you said driven person. I don't like to fail I'm a people pleaser I don't like to disappoint people um but you're not going to you know when i lecture and people say how do you do aspirates i'm like it's all about practicing how do you my son says to me mommy how do you get so good at speaking buddy i practice just the way i tell you to go out and shoot more baskets right right so not that i want to practice failing but i do think every time you fail you probably are going to learn a little bit more so the next failure maybe it won't be so gut-wrenching and you can try to look for the things in that failure that you can move forward and be positive about it. Because I think we need to be positive. I'm trying to be a very positive person, but I still don't like to fail, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it happens. <laughs> I'm sorry, it does you know, yep. Whether it's you know, on a day-to-day interaction with a colleague um, or, you know, or just on a personal level, I think you know, failure is inevitable, but just learning to not be so hard on yourself, I think right. is, the, is the key
0: reframe it as yeah. a learning opportunity as much as anything. Um, okay, so let's move into the, probably the, the area people are most interested in to hear about from you. And that, that is the, the whole field of cancer. I mean, it's a big, big area to to tackle. So um, one of my first questions is, and, and one of the reasons I think what you're doing is is so interesting and exciting, we just touched on it there, this myth that cancer is a, a death sentence. Um, expand upon that. Let's, let's start there.
1: It's funny, though, because I, when I work you know, at a big hospital and people sit in the waiting room, they're surprised if I made you like look at the waiting room, which are my patients. It's the happy golden wag in his tail. I mean, most cancer patients are happy, healthy patients, except for their cancer, meaning they have very good quality of life. And one of the myths is I don't want to poison my dog with chemotherapy. I don't want to torture them with therapy for them to feel better after. What I love about treating dogs and cats with cancer is 80% have no side effects of the ones that need chemo. So they have a great quality of life during treatment and after treatment. And one of the hardest things that I have to do is educate people about that so they can make an informed decision because treating is not for everybody. It's not cheap. You know, it's, it's a commitment. You often have to get there weekly or every other week or every three weeks. I'm okay if somebody comes in and says, Dr. Sue, this is not for me, thank you very much. But what frustrates me is when someone comes to see me three months later and they said, oh, if only I had seen you earlier, I would have maybe thought about treatment. So it's just really educating people that their dog and their cat's gonna have a really good quality of life, not just after treatment,
0: but during treatment, but during it as well. Um, what are the most common and most serious mistakes that vets make when dealing with cancers?
1: I think assuming that the client won't treat. Okay. You know it, it, that that's not the medical part of it, but that's a huge part of it. And maybe not working it up as aggressively as they sh- they medically know they should. You yeah. know, um, or just not giving the owner options upfront or saying, oh, I'm not gonna submit this aspirate because the owners can't afford it. But if you educate the client why we wanna aspirate, they might do it. And I have found that by educating clients and giving them options. So I feel like that's a huge mistake. Or not, I feel that you know so many clients have such a trusting relationship that's well-earned and well-deserved with their primary care veterinarian. And if the primary care veterinarian is pessimistic about treating cancer, it shapes the whole relationship.
0: So that that's a fascinating thing. So, and I and I don't know the, the name that came into my head there was the human, MD Deepak Chopra, mm-hmm. and something I heard about him recently. I know he's a controversial figure, and um, you know, the mind body link, and you know, whether or not it's out there in quackery, I I I don't know, and I don't have a in a particular opinion on that. But one of the things I heard was which which really made sense to me was when, when a doctor tells somebody they've got cancer and they tell them how long they've got to live, more than not, more often than not, they're right. And when that number time comes up, there seems to be evidence to suggest that there's at very least a correlation between that information and the reality. And that one of the bits of advice that he had given was, by all means, tell them they have cancer but don't tell them it's a death sentence don't put a time limit on that that seems to resonate or certainly be a, a you know, echo what you're saying there about the vet's perception then has an impact on how things go for you what what are the extremes of that like have you can you put numbers on how much of an impact that would have based on what you've seen
1: people want numbers you know and my husband's uh internist he's a board certified internist and I always turn the table on him. I'm like, but you don't tell people how long their cat's going to live with renal disease. Um, You don't tell people with Cushing's or heart disease. But when people come see the oncologist, how long is my dog going to live, doc? You know, they want numbers. So, but I always tell people I live to be wrong. And I do have cases that live way beyond the survival times and that they're, on the flip side, there are patients that don't live as long. So I try to get people less clung onto the numbers but when i was a resident we had to know median survival times and response rates and a lot of statistics and i was trained when i went in the exam room to give people that and so i try to balance that a little bit more than just coming in and telling people what a number is because i do think that number can be very devastating um and be difficult for the owner to decide what to do if they think that their dog has six months versus a year. I'm not going to not tell them the information. The other thing that I remind people and, you know, the survival times in perspective to a pet's life is different than our perspective. So when we say a dog will live 12 to 14 months, you know, for lymphoma, I say, but let's put that into perspective without treatment, it's a month. And how long does a dog live? So that, you know, in people, they give five-year survival times and we live 70, 80, 90 years. So for a year, yeah. for a pet's life, is not insignificant. Never enough if it's your own pet. Right. But I do think that it is, um, you know, you have to put those numbers into perspective.
0: And are there any, any numbers out there that are, you know, in, in you know, general awareness that are, not accurate now like what are some of the misconceptions about the more common cancers that we treat that you've found that you fight against and what are the things that you've discovered in your career that that really all of us in general practice should know i mean the the one that comes in my head are mast cell tumors and i remember what i was taught about mast cell tumors you know you know they're going to have this sort of 3 to 9 month survival rate and then i got in practice and i think the only ones i ever euthanized because of the mast cell tumor were ones that came in with very advanced metastases in the chest. But I can think of two of those in 20 years. The rest of them all died of other causes. Yeah,
1: most dogs, I mean, you know, with mast cell tumors, which is the most common malignant skin cancer we see, there, you know, I tell people one size does not fit all. My parents' dog had a very aggressive mast cell tumor and it was, the dog had a lot of other health issues as well. Um, And they didn't treat it aggressively. And I told mom based on the biopsy and the mitotic index and all of this fancy stuff, I said, mom, you know, we're looking at three to four months. The dog lived 10 months and she's like, you're wrong. I was like, yay, I was wrong. You know, so I lived to be wrong, but you know, there are many mast cell tumors that, and that's the whole point of my cancer awareness program, find them early, cut them off get clean and wide margins yeah. and they're unlikely to spread and those dogs can go on and live very long, happy lives and probably have other medical issues <laughs> that will be their demise, right? So one size does not fit all, but people hear mast cell tumor yeah. or, you know, my cousin, Jason and Laney, their first dog, or, you know, Sammy, had a horrible one of these aggressive, crazy mast cell tumors. Their current dog, Ma- Maggie, just had one of the good ones. Yeah. And we talk, you know, and but the you know, it was like um, PTSD. Like, you know, for them, it brought back all of the emotions about Sammy yeah. and he got sick on treatment because I, you know, because he was my cousin's dog, you know, but like, but Maggie's gonna be okay. But for them, having to relive Sammy's experience was so emotional. So I think a lot of the times with people, with, you know, pet owners, and you tell them that, maybe they're, you know, you tell them their cat has mammary cancer Maybe their mom just had breast cancer. There's so much that, you know, goes into. So I can tell them that that cat's going to handle chemo better than a dog. They're thinking about their mom, you know. And so there's so many things that are tied into what we do in helping the pet owner get through it.
0: That's um, fascinating. How much of it do you think is the medicine and how much of it is the management of the personal circumstance and the mental state of the owner then?
1: (sighs) I think it's a combination of both of those. And that's why that was something I, you know, I don't know that my residency prepared me for it, prepared me for the statistics and how to, you know, manage the cases medically, but the, I'll say managing the client and their expectations, that's something that's come from experience of being in the exam room and wanting to communicate better yeah. Um And want to communicate with veterinarians better because, I mean, what you said about mast cell tumor, like, made me a little bit angry. Like, what do you mean that's what we learned? You know, but there are sometimes those are the things you learn. You're like, wait a minute. They're doing much better. So that may shape a veterinarian from not sending me a mast cell tumor that could be like Maggie's and could be really good. Yeah. You know, so it's my frustration. And that's why I lectured, like, let's get out there and give everybody really good information.
0: Yeah. So what other misconceptions are there that that you see that are frustrating that that really we need to know?
1: One of them is dogs with lymphoma still getting started on steroids before they've had all of their diagnostics and sometimes before they've even had a lymph node aspirate. Yeah. So they come in with big lymph nodes and they go home with antibiotics in case it's like a tick infection, so doxycycline and prednisone. And then they come back in, you know, um, so that's one of my frustrations. Um, what
0: impact on t- in terms of survival time does that decision have?
1: So two negative things. One, we know that, and this is in dogs, not cats, but dogs that are on prednisone before they start their chemotherapy, it makes their um, lymphoma less responsive to chemotherapy. We don't know by how much time. So okay. I, I can't say like it knocks four months off. Right, right. But we know that there's a chance that it will make their chemo um, or their lymphoma cells more resistant to yes. chemotherapy. Yeah. The other thing is maybe we haven't done all of our diagnostics. So there's a test that helps us pick their chemo, and you know the the one that tells us whether it's B or T cell. If they're on prednisone, so sometimes the vet will aspirate it, send it to the lab, start them on pred, and they come see me, and all the lymph nodes are gone. I can't figure out which one it is, and so and that's the strongest predictor that we have for outcome. And okay. So,
0: so that messes with your ability to then have a conversation which yeah. is just accurate with the, the right. pet owner, and manage their expectations. Yeah.
1: And unfortunately, I see that at least once a month. Yeah. And so it's one of those ones that is worth repeating. And for all the veterinarians out there who are not doing it, thank you, thank you, thank you. But, <laughs> you know, and I, on the flip side, if you have a really sick dog that can't breathe because he has huge lymph nodes under his neck, by all means, your aspirates and start them on steroids. But for that dog that's still eating well, or maybe their appetite's a little bit off, I say, hey, can we give them a different nausea medication to get them through until they come see me for over the next couple of days? Because I'll get them in in the next couple of days.
0: Okay. And no.
1: You got me on my soapbox. No, I'm great. Stay up there.
0: (laughs) What I'm conscious of is there's a lot of people listening that can't refer to Dr. Sue. Is there a process that you would suggest is a good you know, what's, what's the benchmark? What's the, in terms of the standard of care that in, a general practitioner, these are the things you really ought to do with lymphoma and maybe more broadly with with cancers as a generalized approach to them? And, and is it appropriate to say a generalized approach to cancer?
1: One of the reasons that I lecture is there are many parts of the country where there is not a cancer specialist, you know. Um, or someone's would have to drive six hours. Like someone's not driving six hours weekly for the CHOP chemotherapy protocol for their dog's lymphoma. Some And I, I, I hesitate because some oncologists believe that every cancer patient should be managed by an oncologist and don't like when general practitioners are doing it or being taught how to do it better. I tend to be a little bit more practical. Yep. And I think that... There are veterinarians who are doing chemotherapy, and so hopefully they're coming to my lectures and or you know reading articles and learning how to or anybody's lectures, but they're learning how to do it better, um, because I think it's very naive to think that cancer specialists are going to be the only one treating cancer in the U.S. and Canada. There's something like only four hundred oncologists. It's crazy. There's you know there's not enough of us, and there may be. 10 of us clumped in the, in the metro New York area. Right, right. And then you go to other parts of the country. So I do think it is reasonable for general practitioners to treat cancer patients, but let's hope that they're learning about it, they're doing the right chemotherapy safety things for their staff and their clients and themselves, um, and then getting better at it.
0: And on the safety issue, we, we uh, had, had dinner last night and you were telling me a story of somebody if what, what, what so was one of day? my
1: nurses, when I when uh, we started the practice um that I was at before this one, so almost ten years ago, she was a supervisor, smart, smart technician. But she said at the past practice, her boss said, "Go outside to draw up the chemo and make sure that you're not standing downwind." <laughs> Downwind. I think she Just was allowed to wear gloves but no hood no closed you know connection system to decrease exposure um it's a
0: very natural fume cupboard right yeah unless crazy, you're downwind right <laughs> horrible um, so I, I'm I'm, I'm going to come back to again one of the other things you mentioned was uh, or we were talking about was the connection with clients in the exam room and certainly from my time spent in exam rooms and I've watched a lot of people doing consults now, what I've noticed is the vets frequently know what's going on with the animal but struggle to find the right words to communicate that in a way that the owner then takes the action that's in the best interests of the animal. And it's almost never about money from the pet owner's perspective, although it's frequently about money from the veterinarian's perspective. That, to my mind, when you add in the sensitivity and the emotion of dealing with a pet with, with cancer, that would seem to me to be something that would amplify that effect to make that harder. Um, so the language we've said obviously does have an impact. Do you have any advice for anyone listening about what sort of language or what language would you use in that moment in the exam room with, with clients?
1: For me, two two tips that have really helped me in the exam room recently, and I've actually gotten very interested and in, researched and learned about it. But the two tips that I have is empathetic phrases where you say, you know, and I now actually write it on the discharges. We're all rooting for Henry. Um, I'm concerned about the x-rays, you know. So, so it, you know, it's just where you're part of the team. These are not the results that we were hoping for. You know, so it's, you know, not like you're going to be disappointed. This is, you know, we're all in this together. They're together, so, yeah. Yeah, so I think the empathetic phrases, and when I, when I talk to other veterinarians, I say, find one or two empathetic phrases and just incorporate them into your talk, you know, to really em- drive that home with the owners. And then the other big thing that has helped me in the exam room, especially those initial consults, when I was a resident, we went in, and it's called the shot put method, where you just go in, and you give everybody all the information. And I would walk in, and I'd say- Show up and throw up. Yeah. it's a, That's great. I love that. Can I, can I take that? You can, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But we, I would go in and say, I know your dog has lymphoma, and you have a lot of questions. I'm going to go through everything, and then you can ask questions. And I would tell them how lymphoma starts, and I would tell them the tests that we do, and then I would tell them the treatment options, and then i tell them the prognosis, and then I, my nurse would come and give them the estimates typed up for them so they had it. Right with information sheets and a nice package, you know, you know all this info that they need about chemotherapy. And at the end, I'd be like, do you have any questions? They'd be like, maybe one. No, no, you went, o-. they'd look at their list. No, you went over everything. Yeah. Now, what I really think is a much better way is it's more of a dialogue. Yeah. It's called the Frisbee method, where you go back and forth. I like the chunk and check, which I think is just a great name too. Yeah. I didn't make that one up. But you go in and you give a chunk of information and then you check with an open-ended question. Yeah. Do you have any questions about that? Or what questions do you have that's going to be better? Because you don't want them saying yes or no. So give them a piece of information and then ask them. Give them another piece of information and let them have questions before. Oh, can I give one more?
0: Yeah, please. That's great. You can give give as many more as you like. No, I
1: mean, and this is one that scared me when I first started doing it. And I go, I walk in and I say, what do you know about your cat's lymphoma? And they kind of look at me sometimes like, well... That's why I'm here. I'm like, no, I just want to know what, what have you read online? Um, But what I love about that sometimes they be like, oh, well, you know, my dog had a Mangiosarcoma and we euthanized him on the table or, you know, my, oh, my other dog had lymphoma and, you know, lived two years and never had a chemotherapy side effect. I'm not afraid of chemo. So by asking that information up front, you get to tailor your talk to their needs. Um, And I really like it. But again, at first I was like, oh, do I really want this opportunity to find out what they know? Um, But it's good.
0: And if it sounds like there is a war going on outside, (laughs) it's because we're being buzzed by, uh, Virginia Beach is right next to Oceania Naval Air Station where they're they're doing a lot of training exercises. All the time, day and night. Buzzing us nonstop here. (laughs) Empathy, therefore, sounds like, that's what you're getting at there. Um, the ability to understand their position and then empathize and and change your approach based on that. Um, I like the, the Frisbee method. That's quite cool. Yeah. That's a cool name as well. So I might use that one. We can swap. I like, <laughs> I
1: like show up and throw up. Is
0: that it? <laughs> well, there, you can have yeah. that one. I'll use Frisbee. We, 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 we can reference each other. You work each day you know, to, to treat cancers. And I'm really fascinated by your viewpoint of of seeing it as a chronic illness, Mm -hmm. not a death sentence. How do you do that practically speaking? And then there's a part B to that question and that is always there's this, almost this friction between general practice and specialty where people wonder whether or not they either should refer or whether or not, you know, you see things that sometimes refer to specialty facilities and then the animal has an awful lot of treatment and it, you know on occasions it, they still lose the animal and there you wonder although the magnificent pain management and surgical technique there's still an impact on the animal's welfare there's an impact on the client's bank balance and there are always occasions where you don't get that win do you have a criteria for when you think this is this is a good case and when you think this is not a good case and how do you approach that as a challenge That's a long question.
1: It is, and it's hard um, because you may have your medical opinion, and the owners could have a different opinion. So, there are some cases where, like this, and I'll be really blunt, like hemangiosarcoma, which I think is a treatable cancer, but it's still a crappy cancer in the sense that, you know, getting to the one year survival time like we can with other cancers is much harder. And so, they're going to have to go through surgery and then they're going to have chemotherapy, and the one year survival rates are still. Low.
0: Can I ask a sidebar on that? And that is the cases where you know, then you do the ultrasound scan and you find the gigantic mass in the abdomen. Those ones have always turned out to be benign in the biopsies I've done when I've done the surgeries. And it's always the little ones in the spleens that have turned out to be the horrors. Is that?
1: Yeah. So I actually have a talk um, on splenic masses that I am doing. Why I'm here, but it came from when I changed practices a year and a half ago. The ER doctor saying to me. Can you do a talk on splenic masses? They're always hemangio. And I'm like, no, they're not. And so we go through the statistics, but size doesn't matter. Size is not, that's one of the myths, you know, that's one of the tips. Size is not going to tell you whether it's benign or malignant. Right. Um, In incidental splenic masses, so you're doing an ultrasound for something else and you find a mass in the spleen, those are actually more likely to be benign. Yeah. The dog has a hemoabdomen and no history of trauma instead of being about a 50% chance of hemangio goes up to like 80%. So that's why my ER doctors always think the, you know, the collapsed dog with the bleeding splenic mass is hemangio because it changes the statistics. So um, yeah, but size is not a good predictor ultrasound appearance, you know, you know, so I have slides um, that my husband gave me because he does all the ultrasounds. And I said, I need a hemangioma, the benign one and hemangiosarcoma. And so he sent me the images and I go, which one's which? She goes, that's the point. Right. <laughs> and he's like, and so I was like, well, I want it to be accurate. He's like, it doesn't matter They're but you know, they were different yeah, patients, it, but it
0: just isn't. So deal with it.
1: Yeah. So, but he, I did make him look it up. Sorry. <laughs> I, I
0: distracted you from yeah. the question though. What was
1: the question again?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think I forgot as well. Um, no, the question was, so part one was, how do you make cancer, uh, stop it being the big scary C word and make it a chronic illness? And what practical yeah. steps do you do with that? And then how do you determine when an animal can, is a good candidate and an animal is really not a good candidate?
1: Most of our patients are good candidates. Some of them just require more work. So like a dog that has the bleeding splenic mass may need a transfusion before surgery, may need other stuff to kind of buff them up to get them through the surgery. Right. But I, and you know, cancer tends to be in middle aged and older dogs and some of them have concurrent issues diabetes and you know other things but in general most of the patients that I see are really good candidates for treatment if the owners are on board and have realistic expectations the reason that I think that we treat it like you know a chronic condition is because for example lymphoma even once they go into remission and they finish chemo they're likely going to relapse right so we're not curing them of their cancer, but can they live longer and live well during their treatment and then after their treatment? Um, and most of my patients, like I said, they're the ones in the waiting room wagging their tail, very happy patients. And so that's why I know that treating is is a good option.
0: I was told, in my, you know, I guess when I was an undergraduate 20 years ago um, by uh, David Argyle, mm-hmm. um, he said... You know, the rule in veterinary medicine is it's not about quantity, it's about quality. Correct. Um, Are you, are we, have we moved on from that now? It's 20 years, a lot of things have changed in medicine. Are we at the point where we can say actually we can get both? Or is it still too vague as to how this disease operates to be able to say something like that?
1: I think it will always be about quality of life. Um, We want them to be tolerating treatment very well. And I feel now we have better... Preventative medications, better nausea medications. Um, I'm way more preventative, and I teach veterinarians that when I talk about how we give chemotherapy to be very proactive with nausea medications and, and diarrhea medications and things like that. So they're getting less side effects, or if they get them, we can really jump on top of them. Yeah. So I think that has made their quality of life improved during treatment. Um, the quantity, you know, some cancers were doing a better job now, and some, you know, there's some exciting new treatments for lymphoma out there now. Um, but you know, that is one of the frustrating parts is, um, you know, you're making me pause. I'm thinking like in the last 20 years have, are there cancers that we're doing a much better job? I think we're doing a better job, not just with the time, but with the quality of time that the pet has not the quantity maybe.
0: Okay. And I want to just switch gears slightly here and talk about the role of nutrition. It's something that certainly I've been Becoming more interested in uh, over over the last few years, and certainly from the human side of things, you know, a lot of the old diseases we used to see in, in veterinary medicine, um, and in and in human medicine or in human healthcare, have have gone. Things like rickets and, and nutritional deficiencies, and we've replaced them with diseases caused by an excess of carbohydrates and fats, or the wrong kinds of fats in our diets. Are we seeing that, I mean, it seems like we're seeing that same trend, certainly in terms of obesity and, um, in the exam room. Is And some of the interesting research that has come out on the, the role of fat as a, you know, and, and this is very naughty general practitioner mm-hmm. understanding this, so forgive my, my, my brain if this is awful, but almost acting as an amplifier for inflammation and a, a force multiplier and, and that, it, it, how is that impacting on or these these lifestyle choices and the nutritional choices we make for our pets now, is that having an impact on the development on the um, incidence of cancers? you know there's a lot of people on the human side think that you know, we're seeing cancers in younger people younger and younger people because of nutritional choices. We see effects like that in human medicine and and are is there any advice that we you think we should be giving pet owners in regards so I'm thinking about preventive treatments now i
1: don't think we i mean it's, it's so interesting i don't know that we have the studies to show that lean we there's a great labrador study that showed that leaner labradors lived two years but they didn't look at other diseases yeah, like right. diabetes <laughs> and and cancer and things like that yep. so
0: it's too broad I think, to
1: right i think we have to extrapolate that um we know in people the two lifestyle choices are diets that are low in fruits and vegetables and obesity are linked to cancer So for me, I think that's a reasonable, you know, leap to our patients and saying leaner pets are probably going to be at lower risk for cancer. Though there aren't great studies to look at that. Right. Um, And you know, diets and fruits and vegetables, I do recommend, you know, you know, adding except for the ones that they're not supposed to have, like onions and things like that. But you know, having our pet owners you know add add vegetables there's limited studies there's a great one in scotties with bladder cancer right that got more vegetables it was usually carrots because that's i guess what people were getting it was a you know uh, where they looked back a retrospective study but you know those that got fruits and vegetables more than a couple of times a week had lower incidence of bladder cancer so again i think there are some studies coming out there but they're not as good as they are in people but i think it's a reasonable thing to say We don't want overweight pets. And let's think about what we're putting in them. You know, whether, you know, good foods, good diets. Not everybody can home cook. um, But I think that there are (laughs) others. Most of
0: us humans don't manage to home cook for ourselves. I do
1: home cook cancer diets for their patients, uh, for their pets. And I'm like, listen, there's no judgment here. I can barely get a home cooked meal on the the table for my two boys and my husband. So I'm not home cooking for my dog. But luckily there's some good... You know, commercial diets that are, you know, that deal with a lot of the issues in some of the other commercial diets. I'll okay. i leave it like that.
0: All right. Now, I have a couple of questions um, from listeners. Okay. Um, the first one is from our, again, I think a mutual friend, Bill Schroeder. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bill asks, are there any misconceptions pet owners have when they learn when their pet has developed cancer?
1: I think we talked about that. I mean, I think the biggest one for pet owners is, is my pet going to die? Like now, you know, I mean, like how long are they going to live? And then if I decide to treat, will they be sick the entire time? And they won't. But I think, you know, so when I tell people 80% of dogs and cats have no side effects to chemo, and when they do, it's usually mild and it only lasts a couple days and we have great medications to support them through it. They're not going to be in the hospital, you know, sick from chemotherapy side effects. Very uncommon in dogs and cats.
0: And do you achieve that 80% by medicating them and managing their symptoms proactively? Or is that 80% regardless of what you do?
1: Um, It's a great, you know, it's actually a hard number to find the statistics where that came from because when I write a journal, so but most oncologists say that and there isn't, I don't know if it's like eight glasses of water, but I mean, in my experience, it's about 80%, but I do think it is because we need to be proactive with their medications. And there's simple things like giving nausea medication with treatment, having the owners have it on hand at home so they're not waiting five hours after a pet vomits to go get it, like, oh, I have the nausea medication, I'm gonna give it right now and I'm gonna jump on it. So I think it's probably because we're so proactive, but dogs and cats handle chemo better than people. They just do, and cats better than dogs. So some of it is species related and some of it is how we approach their treatment and their dosages.
0: Okay, and um, Jen Wardlaw asks, how do you cope with die-off as an oncologist? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, that's more about your um, dealing with that because it's a mental, you know, we all have those I have observed this rather chilling phenomenon which vets in the UK call the Christmas clear out um, which is sort of gallows humor I think Um, where you know there are certain times of the year vets become a bit disposable and three euthanasias in a row is a pretty gut-wrenching thing to have to do. Um, How do you cope with that? Are are or Are you coping with that or do you see the the last few days, or is that done with the general practice? Do you do you have any it, ways of keeping I'm happy? I'm surprised
1: through that? how many of my clients want to come to me for the euthanasia because they feel like we understand them. We we know what the you know. What the pet's treatment has been like, whether it's been over three months or you know two years, um, and a lot of the times, you know, they choose to be with us because they've bonded with the oncology team and they've of been course. seeing us. And my nurses are phenomenal. It's not just me. It's you know I couldn't do what I do without them, and they they support them through so much. I mean, they're like counselors half the time. Right. So. For me, what helps me get through, because some of those are heart wrenching, and I'm crying with the owners. And I'm going to, you know, when I walk out of the room, I'm like, I can't do this. But then I get the card from them, and yeah. they tell me, like, thank you for the last year and a half that we had. Yeah. And because of you, we had more summers, you know, up in Vermont or, you know, or things like that. And it's like, I know that that really sad moment that we've had so many good, good times that the family had with their pet. Yep. And that's how I get through it is I focus on the positive, but it hurts during those times. Um, for sure.
0: No, that's, that's a very, um, inspiring answer. Um, all right, let's, let's change pace and, and, cry. um, so I'm going to move into the, the more quick fire questions Good. now. I know I'm going to be respectful of your time because you are speaking in the not too distant future. Yep. Um, so here we go. And you, you can give long answers or short answers. Okay. Okay. I, I'll try to be short. They're short questions. Okay. So what's the thing you do? What does Dr. Sue do? I mean, it's probably the clues in the name here. This could be the stupidest question of all time. But what's the thing that you do better than anyone else? What's your superpower?
1: Oh, no. What is my superpower? I don't know that it's a superpower, but I just try to be positive and I try to be kind to the people around me and not be a source of negative energy.
0: And what's your kryptonite or your anti-superpower?
1: My anti-like, I'm too sensitive and I care what people think.
0: What do you think is done? I'm going to leave this open, right? But what's done well in veterinary medicine?
1: I think we are good advocates for the pet. And that's really hard because they can't always tell us what's wrong. And I think that some, you know, it's it's like pediatrics, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the client, quote unquote, is the parent. Um, you know, I take my son in and he, you know, I can't figure out the pediatrician's like, he has an ear infection. Like, oh, thank God. So I think I think in general, veterinarians are really good advocates for the pet and really good at overall pet health. Um, on a day-to-day basis.
0: Um, now, I've had some really funny answers to this Uh-oh. question, so no pressure on you all. Uh, and not always funny, like for good reasons. <laughs> In fact, usually the next, the next two are some of my favorite ones. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever given or received?
1: Relax more.
0: Are you, did you give that or did you receive that?
1: Advice? I think um, probably both, but probably to receive it. I think that I am a very, stressed person i'm a very high intensity person and i think that you know you can it can be too much so i think it's 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 for me it's been the continual effort to try to we talked about the work-life balance um, and how hard that is being a working mom and my clinics and then all the dr sue stuff that i do so i think it's just trying to relax and enjoy the everyday things more and not get caught up in it
0: and so what do you have any specific things that you do to relax that you find to be highly beneficial Because I say you're doing a lot of stuff? Um, I, again, I want to be respectful of your time, so I might leave it for, you know, around uh, two if people want it to ask you about the balance between work life being a, you know, having a, being a mom and being a successful business lady as well. Um, we won't go there now because that's, again, that's another huge topic what are your what are your tactics to to the, have that
1: the the easy thing for me which to answer that i've just started doing about three four years ago is i work out most days uh, whether it's just even just getting at you know a short workout i get up I, i'm not a morning person but i get up every morning before work and i work out every day in the weekends and it clears my head and if i don't do it i feel more stressed so for me exercise and movement even if it means less sleep or sacrificing something else, has been so important for my mental health.
0: Do you have a time of day, like you know, because you've got you've got um, two boys, which are who are a little older than my daughter, and I know that one of the challenges I have is, as soon as my daughter's awake, then there's no chance for exercise.
1: I get up early in you the morning. You get up
0: early. What time do you get up?
1: A little before six. It's not. It's okay. not crazy. Yeah. It's not crazy, but I get to work a little bit later, and I stay work a little bit later. Um but I'm up between five thirty and six, but if I don't get it done in the morning it's not it's, it's not going to happen, so you just <laughs> all
0: right, And no, so part two of the question was what's the worst this is this is usually the funny one so what's the worst piece of advice you've ever given or received
1: Relax more, no <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> Don't, least, worry, don't, don't worry don't worry about your presentations come out and hang out with us no um <laughs> quote,
0: quote unquote apparently something i said last night yeah we'll see how my talks dinner. go
1: today um my worst piece of advice <laughs> become a surgeon no um you could be a surgeon too <laughs> probably i mean some of it. it would be a long answer it has to do with like working with toxic people but you know
0: you can can give a long answer no
1: i i mean i think some of it is just you know being in the that kept me in an environment that wasn't good for my team's health and my own health. Um, and not just our health, but it was a toxic work environment and it's like how to change that situation. And so sometimes I think you listen to the people around you that this will be the, the right thing. And so, and I'm not a quitter, but for me, I didn't quit, but I changed jobs, um, to find a better, you know, better place. And now, you know, so I think that can be, um, you know, sometimes when you're stuck in a bad situation, whether it's personal or professional, you get advice during it and it may not be one quote, but that just, you look back and you're saying, oh, I should have changed things sooner or things like that. So I think that's where the bad advice for me has been where I know I needed a change, but I didn't know I needed a change. Okay.
0: Um, life has that way, doesn't it? Um, what, uh, what what books, and I'm thinking more from a, a, a business development um or personal development mm-hmm. um, point of view here. What books have you read or are you reading that have been really influential on your career and development?
1: So I one of the books that I've read recently that I love is Made to Stick, yeah. which is about making ideas sticky and creating hooks like Velcro. Um, so I love that because that's It's what i'm trying to do in the lecture hall right we're trying to get people to have practical tips that they can go back to the clinic and be better clinicians but you're also doing it in the exam room right how am i going to make this idea sticky to the owner that they can go home and tell their spouse about chemo um so i love the ideas that's been one of my favorite books recently is made to stick um our mutual friend dr andy Rourke uh recommended never eat alone yeah and that's about you know and what I love about that, it's not only about networking, but it's about building relationships. You know, you want to work with people you know, like and trust. And um, so that's one thing that's been really one of my favorite parts about coming to these conferences is meeting new colleagues and connecting with people. And then we help each other and we build each other up and we're all gonna succeed if we do that.
0: It is it is amazing how many people that I have met through the CBC and the other conferences I've spoken at. And the journeys then that you go on with with the people that you would never have thought possible.
1: Yeah, and to sort of go back to the bad advice thing, you know, I try to surround myself with the people that we will build each other up because there are unfortunately too many people in our profession and in this world that will push us down, and and that's you know where we talk about the toxic work environment and things like that, where they just squish your ideas, squish your aspirations, and that's not where any of us should be.
0: Here, here. Um. What's the most controversial or interesting thing about Doctor Sue that people don't know that, that would uh, amaze them or amuse them or shock them that you're willing to say on
1: most controversial? On <laughs> do you have any ideas? No, no. I was no, like, no. dude, I'm, I'm not
0: fishing there. By the way, no. But it sounds um, like there's stories.
1: There's always good stories, <laughs> but I don't know if uh, off the cuff I can think of a good one. Um, I mean, it's not controversial. I mean, if I could do one thing more, it would sleep. Like, you know, I just I feel so sleep-derived most of the time. But that's not controversial. But, like, I, I love to sleep. I could sleep 12 hours a day. Um, <laughs> but for some reason, I'm, you know, getting by on five, maybe six. That's not a good answer.
0: Sorry. That's okay. Um, if
1: I, Now I, I want to know your answer for that one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, God. No, there's, there's no way that I will... Um, <laughs> I will say that on record. Uh, certainly not my own podcast. That that <laughs> that would that might be suicide. Um, so if you could send, you're you're a big social media user. Um, you're the first guest on the show that is a big social media user. Um, so if you could send one tweet to the world, so it's got to be under 140 characters. Um, what would it say? Everybody, everybody on. Twitter would just get that like some magic smartphone. What would it say?
1: Cancer and pets is not a death sentence. Early detection saves lives. Hashtag why wait aspirate.
0: I absolutely love that hashtag. And there's no way that I can conduct an interview without getting you to expand upon that. Because I get it. But say more about your see something... Um, do something program?
1: So it's an early detection program for lumps and bumps in dogs and cats that the story behind it is again, one of my biggest failures, which was my head nurse's dog, Smokey, had a a bunch of benign lipomas. So those benign fatty tumors that I had aspirated over the years. She found another one and we just got complacent and it turned out to be a seven centimeter soft tissue sarcoma. He's Addisonian, he had kidney disease, had an arrhythmia, so he had a lot of concurrent you know, conditions that we talked about, but it required a big surgery and a big flap. And I realized I missed the boat in one of my favorite patients. And I realized there's no good guidelines for lumps and bumps. So I just started this program. I got a bunch of colleagues to give me their input and now it's a joint program that I'm working on to roll out through the VCA hospitals, but I lecture everywhere about it. But it's simple. The mass is the size of a pea which is one centimeter and has been there a month. So that's to see something. We wanna do something. We wanna go to our veterinarian and ask for an aspirate. And I am strongly encouraging veterinarians to do those aspirates. And through social media, I had a woman in England said through your tweets, I have gone to my veterinarian and they found a mast cell tumor in in her yellow lab. So even through the power, that's what I love about social media. And that's why I spend so much time on it is I'm reaching people in Australia and England and within the States that are being empowered to go to their vet and find lumps and bumps when they're smaller and can be cured with surgery alone.
0: And so, this is a campaign that is, who's who is the primary target? Of the campaign is it the pet owner or the veterinarian?
1: Yes. So there's two target audiences. Um, and so, one is the veterinarian and the veterinary team. So, because if a pet owner comes to you and says, "I want an aspirate. I found this lumber bump," Doctor. Sue said, "See something, do something." Yep. And you go, "Nah." It, it doesn't look like cancer. It doesn't feel like cancer. I can't look at a mass. You can't look at a mass and know what it is. Yeah. And lipomas and mast cell tumors can look exactly alike. And I've, I'm still fooled because we can't. So I want veterinarians to do the aspirates and I want pet owners to know when they go to the veterinarian that you need to do the aspirate. So they'll be like, you're going to say I'd like to do an aspirate. they are like, of course. You know, just like, I want to check for heartworm. I'm going to run right. a test. Right. Of course, right? So everybody needs... Two target audiences,
0: and so let's 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 see if we can lay one thing to bed here in the podcast as well, and that okay. is what is the right way to take an aspirate. Everyone's got an opinion on this.
1: There's no, I mean, there's no right or wrong way. I, I, or, or the best, most the effective. best way. I like what's called the fenestration method, where you take the needle without the syringe attached, put it in the mass poke it around, and then you attach the needle to syringe over your slide in case a little comes out when you make the connection and make your smears. Um, The other method is the aspiration where you keep the needle and syringe together, insert in the mass and draw back. That's better for like fluid filled lumps and bumps, but I find the one where you're just using a needle, I usually use a 20 gauge needle that I get very good samples. But the answer is you gotta know how to do both. And you just, we talked about this early, like my son and his basketball, Practice, practice, practice. I don't. They're very easy to do, and yep. if I can do them, remember, I couldn't be a surgeon, but I can do aspirates. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> if I can do it, you can do it.
0: <laughs> and what are the what are the cancers that every generalist needs to know how to identify under microscopy, or should they just be sending them off to the laboratory? So
1: for the program, we are advocating that the samples have to go to the the lab because yep. I'm not a cytologist and I miss stuff that the cytologist. But you know. In my l- lectures, we go through the different categories. So I think you should be able to find a mast cell tumor, but sometimes they're hard to identify because they don't have the granules or things like that. So, But you should be able to tell lymphoma, mast cell tumors. Soft tissue sarcomas are very distinguishable from other ones and carcinoma. So I think if you can at least know the, ca- the three categories, you'll be ahead of the game. But do not not aspirate because you don't want to look at the cytology.
0: Okay, t- i.e. I- Send Fear. it to the lab. Yeah, right. Just you, do it.
1: And the reason for the program we said, you know, your vet will send the samples to the lab is to take away that responsibility for the veterinarian to make a diagnosis right away. I happen, I'm a geek with cytology. I really like it, but you don't have to like cytology to do aspirates. Right.
0: You, you can always use your support services to yeah. get that information. I think it's a, it's a great program. Certainly we use it in my hospital in the UK. And um Where can, where can listeners find out more about that program and more about you if they want to follow you? Where's the best place to go?
1: I think the easiest way is my website, drsuecancervet.com. But I spend most of my social media time on Facebook on Dr. Sue Cancer Vet, you know, through Facebook. And I tell every day, I usually post a story. Now I'm vlogging for some strange reason. And I say that because it's such a time suck, <laughs> like yeah, podcasting. right? Right. Um, But, you know, and I share stories of loss, but a lot of stories of hope and successes and anniversaries and milestones that we hit with our patients. And, you know, try to educate um, veterinarians and pet owners about the successes that we have. And it's a really fun community. Um, and My husband calls my Facebook page, my boyfriend and I see my boyfriend every day and I spend, you know, I spend a lot of time, but again, it's like that client in England who found her dog's mast cell tumor because of me. So I just feel like it's a really fun way to share the knowledge.
0: It's a, it's a great, great Facebook page to visit and, um, the, the content is very good and it's uplifting and it's educational. So, um, that's fantastic. Um. Dr. Sue, thank you so much for your time and for your energy and for your talks. And if you get the chance to go see Dr. Sue speak, please do that. Um, you've got to publish them online if you've not already, and and because it's great information. And it's what what she's doing is making a topic that a lot of us, and I would put myself in that bracket as well as as general practitioners, have blocks about the whole area of cancer care and. And beliefs that maybe aren't true and, and dr sue's challenging them and taking complex material making it simple making it digestible so definitely definitely check that out dr sue thank you so much for your time it was great talking to you i hope, I hope if every, you guys out there like this you want to hear more then let me know and uh, next time i'm over in the u.s maybe we can pester dr sue into round two because there's a whole bunch of other stuff i'd love to <laughs> ask you about. thank you thank you So before you jump off one last message, if you enjoyed the podcast and you want to get updates, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. And if you would do me a great favor, I would be super grateful and it would help to promote the podcast if you would leave me a review. The more reviews, the better the rankings in the iTunes search results. I'd be most, most grateful. And don't forget, I publish a weekly blog post as well over on the Hamster Wheel. You can sign up for updates whenever that goes live on nickel That's N I C O L, you're spelling that. So it's www.drdavennickel.com. I will see you there. And I'll see you next time on the podcast. Thank you.